0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan, and...
0: Me, Tegan Taylor.
1: And don't forget uh, that our email address for questions and comments, which we'll come to at the end of the podcast, is healthreport at abc.net.au. And what have you got today for us in terms of stories, Tegan?
0: Well, Norman, as you and me and everyone knows, we were hit with a pandemic this year and we took for granted that scientists were going to come to our rescue, and they have. But many in the field are warning that the fundamental science that leads to the kind of breakthroughs that we've seen this year is under threat because there's simply not the funding for it.
1: Okay, we'll come back to that later. Also today, having a baby or mummy brain is a frequent complaint by pregnant women and recent mothers, usually meaning being vague and distracted. Well, you've got to stop complaining. It turns out there might be a good investment for brain health in the future. Australia's health star ratings on food may be more important for food manufacturers than us shoppers. Some companies' desire for a better rating could be good for us all, but again, again maybe not. And according to one of the largest studies ever conducted anywhere in the world, young Australians aged 16 to 33 who were maltreated in their early years have more than double the chance of dying at a young age compared to people who weren't maltreated. And within that statistic, they had almost five times the risk of death from poisoning, alcohol and other drugs and nearly three times the risk of suicide. This was a study which included every person born in South Australia since 1986 linked to hospital and death records. 600,000 people overall and 330,000 over 16 by the time they started to collect data on deaths. It's huge, and based in the community, not some selected population. Leonie Siegel, who's Professor of Health Economics and Social Policy at the University of South Australia, was the lead author. Welcome to the Health Report, Leonie.
2: Uh, good afternoon, Norman.
1: So a big study, you must be sure of these findings. Uh,
2: yes, and um, I mean there's, there's two reasons we're sure of them. One is the data is extremely uh, good quality. There's a lot of people, it's all administrative data. Death records uh, absolutely um uh, clear and correct our birth registry data, so it's both a combination of very high quality data, um, our, our allocation to um, child maltreatment. Um, we've got categories which are linked to um, child protection system contact, which is very clearly aligned to um, child maltreatment history. So it's both the, the number, the size of the cohort, and the quality of the um, of the data.
1: So I was going to ask you what sort of maltreatment we're talking about, but essentially being referred to child protection services was a proxy for maltreatment.
2: Correct. So it's and to reach threshold levels of concern. So we're talking. Um, particularly the children, the the persons who had the elevated risk of of death in this age group were um, persons who were referred with at least meeting thresholds for child protection concerns. So, we're talking serious physical abuse, serious emotional abuse, major domestic violence issues, um, serious neglect, it can be medical neglect, supervisory neglect, I mean, really quite very, very disturbing situations.
1: Have you got any sense of this? Because what you're doing is really taking a photograph of these people's lives early on in life and then what happens to them later. So I've got two questions. One is, what about age at referral to child protection? Does that matter?
2: Um, It seems to. So it does seem that the earlier the referral and particularly with children... um, where there's sort of really serious, extremely serious concerns, then earlier removal does seem to um, have better outcomes because, in fact, you're reducing their perhaps exposure to um, this this sort of very disturbing child maltreatment, which we know has serious effects for brain development. But there's a lot more to tease out in that. So that's really, um, you know, there's a lot more work to be done to ascertain exactly the nature of child protection involvement that that might be beneficial as against potentially um, harmful.
1: So, if they were adopted out or taken into foster care, their outcome was better.
2: Yes, although um, I suppose it's 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 if they're taken into care later and and also with a lot of these children they're in and out of care so there's a bit more work that needs to be done to really unpick that and see what's driving it so our study found that if children were taken into care after the age of three for the first time their outcomes were far worse than if children were taken into care for the first time before they reached the age of three so
1: what so while maltreatment is truly appalling and the early years Are worse, so you understand all that. But but children who are maltreated often have other things going on. There's a housing problem, um, unemployment, poverty, and so on. How are you sure that maltreatment is the key factor here? Appalling though it is.
2: We, because we've got all that other data. So we also have data on sort of socioeconomic status at birth, which we've basically proxied from um, uh, postcode um, or suburb at, at birth. Um, we have data on um, uh, sort of maternal age, um, birth outcome, uh, maternal smoking, maternal... Um, so there's a number of other factors that are included in our data. So we've got what you'd know is sort of unadjusted um, hazard ratios. So if we don't adjust for those factors, um, then the outcomes look even worse. So what we're quoting here, actually, the adjusted. So we've effectively taken out the impact of those um, factors.
1: And and purely the maltreatment. So the second part of my question about this snapshot in time, have you got any sense from the data what the pathway to suicide, drug and alcohol abuse um, was?
2: Um, well, we've also been looking at hospitalisations and ED attendances. So from that, you can get some picture we have. not actually, that's sort of one of the things we're seeking to do is to pull that together into a sort of a single analysis. Um, certainly, the theory would tell us that um, children with child maltreatment history, that it has really major implications for their brain development um, and also for rel- relational, um, their sort of capacity for successful relationship. It impacts on their um, schooling, on drug taking, you know, from quite a young age. So essentially we have a situation where they start off with their brains somewhat, you um, they sort of developmental impacts which aren't really...
1: Put them on a, the, an unfortunate trajectory. I want yes, to, and
2: then puts them on. So then it effectively they, they accumulate adversity as they go on.
1: Now, you think that rather than socioeconomic disadvantage being the cause of the maltreatment, that this actually might be intergenerationally the cause of socioeconomic disadvantage. Exactly.
2: I mean, we've written, I've written about that before. Um, and it's interesting when you... Uh, we found in this study that all the socioeconomic variables drop out. Um, so they're there in the univariate when we just um, look with, without with the unadjusted analysis. Once we bring in child maltreatment, all the socioeconomic variables drop out from this study.
1: So what did the data um, tell you about solutions?
2: Well, I think, I mean, what we know is that the, the brain is... Um, Uh, In in sort of toxic environments, it doesn't do well, but in nurturing environments, it does. So there is a possibility, particularly in the preschool setting, there's some quite nice studies that show there's a quite nice trial in in Victoria that showed that with very intensive um, early childhood education with therapeutic mental health people on site and involved in that work as well, that children who, who came into that service with child protection contact um, improved hugely in terms of emotional and behavioural and cognitive skills. Um, so I think that there's a lot we can do. And the, the point is, by the time children start school, we're already seeing major deficits in children with child maltreatment history. So we don't want, you know, in terms of behaviourally disturbed emotionally, immature, uh, struggling. So if we can work with them in the early childhood years when brains are still plastic and we can work with them and actually in a relational context work with their parents um, so that hopefully we reduce the amount of trauma they're exposed to in the home environment, I think you could turn it around quite quickly. Which requires, you just need to put the resources into
1: it. Which is totally under-resourced, which is, what, which is for another, um, another discussion. Absolutely. Um, and, but shows the benefits of the investment down the track. Leone, thank you. Pleasure. Leonie Siegel is Professor of Health Economics and Social Policy at the University of South Australia. Can't un, over, overestimate how important that study is. This is RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Women often complain of mental fog, problems with memory and thinking when they're pregnant and sometimes in the early days of babyhood. It goes by names like baby brain or mummy brain. It is a thing, as researchers have found, even though it's rarely so severe that a woman falls into abnormal intellectual functioning. It's more in the eye of the beholder. But the good news is that baby brain may actually protect a woman's brain as she gets older by preserving important plasticity. At least that's the suggestion from a brain imaging study of Monash University, comparing what the brain looks like late in life with the number of children a woman has. Winnie Orchard is a researcher at Monash Biomedical Imaging. Welcome to The Health Report.
3: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Now, you did this by doing, using what's called functional MRI, the brain in action. What were you looking for?
3: That's right. So we were using MRI and fMRI to look at the structure and the function of the maternal brain for women in late life, so for, for aging mothers. So we had a group of women in their 70s and 80s, and we looked at how many children they had and then compared that number of children with their brain structure and their brain function. And found some really cool stuff.
1: What did you find? What was the cool stuff you found, Winnie?
3: (laughs) Yeah. So we found that mothers who had more children had an increased thickness of an area of the brain called the parahippocampal gyrus, which is an area associated with memory performance. And we also found that these women with more children indeed had better memory performance. They were able to remember more words from a list of words. And we also found in terms of brain function that these women with more children had patterns of brain activity that were more similar to what we expect to see in younger women's brains.
1: So they had younger brains?
3: Yeah, yeah. And I, think, I
1: think what you found was it was associated with better plasticity of the brain as well.
3: Um, I'm not sure if we could say that definitively, but we did find differences associated with number of children.
1: Did it get beyond a point where they had? So in other words, there was a dose effect. I mean, one of the problems with studies like this is that you can't say cause and effect. Yes. But one of the things that gets you closer to cause and effect is more: if you get a higher dose, you get more of an effect. So what? So more children, a stronger effect on the brain.
3: Yeah, yeah, we can see that sort of cumulative impact of having multiple children on the brain. So yeah, you like a dose effect.
1: Was there a limit? In other words, over a certain number of children, you know, it was brain-destroying?
3: No, no, I don't think it's quite that simple. Um, The analysis that we used was a a Spearman's correlation. So it's not a, a linear relationship, rather a monotonic relationship. What does that mean? It means that each point is larger than the last, but it's not necessarily in a straight line.
1: Oh, so it could tail off, for example. It could plateau out. It
3: could indeed, yeah. We didn't specifically explore the the shape of that. Um, but it's also difficult to make comment about whether there's some magic number because the number of people with those larger families was smaller than the number of people in our sample that had, say, two or three.
1: Now, there's lots of other things that go along. I mean, it goes back to my conversation with Leonie a moment ago. Lots yeah. of things that go along with childbearing, brain health and so on. Were you able to control for... how how rich or poor people were, how much education they'd had in life, because the more education you've had early in life, the better the connectivity in your brain.
3: Yeah, so some of that stuff we had access to. So yeah, we were able to control for education, for age, uh, for blood pressure and cholesterol, for BMI. Um, but we didn't have some more information that we would like about these parents. Like these, their attachment style, how old they were when they gave birth, and that sort of thing.
1: Which brings me to you know th- these women had babies fifty years ago. Yes. When child rearing was a bit different, when perhaps husbands didn't or partners didn't participate as much as they do now, even though they don't participate that much anymore. It's still, uh, do you think that there's a generational change possible here, or this is specific to childbearing?
3: No, I think that that's really fair to say. What we find in this generation is not necessarily going to be the same for the next generation, particularly for fathers. You know, we do see that they're more involved. Now?
1: So, it might be good for father's um, brains eventually?
3: Well, perhaps, yeah. Do you think? What we sort sorry, of, go on. Sorry. What we think is happening is that the experience of child so the, the complexity of, of raising children and the tasks that you have to juggle, that that is very much part of what's causing this neuroprotection, that sorry. doing more is keeping us on our toes into late life. So, yeah, if, if fathers are getting more involved, Maybe they're getting a bit more of that too.
1: So in, in essence, what you're p- hypothesizing here is that the cognitive load, which women complain about, which is I've got to remember about the football training. I've got to remember about the after school care. I've got to remember about booking a camp for summer and everything else. And you're carrying that in your shoulder is effectively brain training.
3: Yes. Yes. Motherhood God, what is a brain cost. training. I think, yeah, it's a very fair thing to say. Say, before pregnancy, I had 10 things to remember and I remember all those 10 things. Yay, go me. That's 100%. Now I've got a kid and I've got 20 things to remember, but I remember 10 of them. Or maybe I've had some decline, even though perhaps you're still performing at the same level.
1: Very briefly, um, because we're almost out of time, tell me about your nappy study because you're recruiting for that.
3: Absolutely. So we're running this study, The Neural Adaptations of the Postpartum Year, or NAPI, where I'm comparing the brains of mothers who are about one year postpartum to a group of women who are over 30 and have never been pregnant to see structural and functional differences at one year and see if they might relate to things like mood, so postnatal depression and anxiety, and cognition, so this idea of baby brain.
1: Well, we'll have a link to that study on our website. Winnie, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Winnie Orchard is a researcher at Monash Biomedical Imaging at Monash University in Melbourne. For the last four or five years, Australia has had a voluntary scheme for food manufacturers to label the package with a Health Star rating. The idea is that it helps you and me decide whether a food is likely to be healthy. The trouble is that it's voluntary. And secondly, it's been unclear whether such ratings make a difference. A recent study has shown that it's a mixed bag, so to speak, in terms of the kinds of products which have a star rating at all and the influence on manufacturers to make their foods healthier. The study was a massive supermarket survey of 60,000 food products over four to six years following the formulation of foods with and without star ratings. Lakshman Blani is at the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne and was the lead author. Welcome to the Health Board, Lakshman. Thanks for having me. I suppose the core finding of your study is that allowing it to be voluntary is the problem.
4: Uh, That's more or less it. So um, one of the things we actually looked at is um, we kind of knew that manufacturers will start providing healthier food in response to a label. What we didn't really know is whether that change happened at the bottom end. So is it like the foods that would get a low rating if you get 1.5? Are you the ones who upgrade to like 2.5 or 3? Or are you really... Is it the foods at the top end that change, or is it the foods that would get a 3.5 that changed to 4.5 or a 5? Uh, what we found is that are, it's actually the foods at the bottom end that reformulate and get healthier uh, when they're labeled. Um, now, that's a problem because, uh, again, this is a rating that's supposed to promote healthier choices and healthy foods. So what, healthy foods- isn't
1: that good then that, that if, there, if you're an unhealthy food and get a low rating, you try and improve it?
4: Yeah, but the thing is, again, so this tries to promote health, uh, healthier foods. What happens is unhealthy foods just don't participate because it's voluntary, right? So if you're an unhealthy... Oh, so if you're producing chips, you, you. you don't
1: even yeah. bother getting a, a star rating. And so and so, so, what you're saying is there's a bias in the star ratings that people who are producing healthy foods say, yeah, oh, well, are, we're going to do well, yeah. so we're going to go and get a star rating.
4: Exactly. So it's the, it's the foods that are tend to be healthier that get to be labelled. So we saw that the foods with the bottom you know, a third of star ratings tend to be labeled about less than half as much as foods that were would rate really high. Um, and again, you can see that because it's those foods at the bottom that tend to reformulate uh, and they're not participating, it's actually driving the overall effect of the program down. Uh, so health star ratings themselves have a, a lower effect because of that behavior.
1: Now, a couple of years ago, I interviewed one of the authors of your paper, Bruce Neal at the uh, George Institute. We found mm-hmm. from the supermarket survey that, in fact, salt, I think salt content had gone up rather than gone down. And that was during the time that you had star ratings.
4: Uh, the trends are actually, uh, in our study, we looked at Australia and New Zealand. So the trends have kind of um, are different between countries. New Zealand foods, for instance, have more salt in them than Australian foods, So they have more capacity to reduce salt and so on and so forth. Um, I think, uh, and yeah, the trends have probably changed since then. So consumers are demanding healthier food and uh, I think the trends are actually towards I think in the two or three years since you last talked to them the food foods actually have gotten marginally healthier. So is there any, and the health star ratings have made a small contribution there.
1: So instead of population instead are, are we saying then that really in terms of population health, star ratings are a waste of time if they're voluntary?
4: Um, they're not a waste of time. It's just the effect would definitely go up. I think uh, even if they were mandatory, it'd be quite hard to see a very large effect. Uh, it's, it's, quite, it's, it's, it's important to say that uh, to actually change diets will take a lot of effort across consumers, across the government, across retailers, across producers. Star ratings are just the tip of that effort, right? Um, so in that way, while they're having some effect now, uh, we're definitely sure that they will have a higher effect uh, if they were mandatory.
1: But, uh, but, but they're
4: still a very important part of the puzzle.
1: Well, what you were looking at is what, how manufacturers respond to the existence of a health star rating. And what you're yep. saying is just in summary is that if you're producing healthy food, you'll go for it. If you're producing yep. an unhealthy food, you tend not to. But if you yep. do, you will improve it a, a little bit. Um, but what about sales? Uh, is there any evidence that sales are affected by star ratings?
4: Uh, There's no formal observational study of it done in Australia, so no one's actually looked at sales data. But we did have a randomized control trial, again, by Bruce McNeil's team, so who we had talked to two years ago, and they found no effect uh, of that on sales at all. Uh, So it could be a bit of confirmation bias. People who buy healthier food uh, all all the time might buy foods with higher health stars and so on. We have had studies um, abroad as well, and they generally find small... Effect. So they're in like the low percents normally, or they're in less than 10% normally. Um, so you're so essentially
1: agreeing with the, with the grocery council, I think it was, argued against all this because they said it was a waste of time and money and you know, an unnecessary regulation. So you, but could it, could it be transformed if they were involuntary that you had to actually star rate?
4: Well I am definitely sure that both the effect of uh, on the consumer choice would go up as consumers could make better choices and had the health star rating on more foods I'm pretty sure that the effect there would go up and I'm pretty sure and our study definitely says that if it was put on more foods the effect on producers would go up as well so even though it's small uh, the effect would definitely go up on both sides and again want to underscore that star ratings are just one piece of the puzzle there, so it'll take more effort to actually get bigger results.
1: And you might as well whistle Dixie as to wait till it becomes involuntary. Lashman, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Lashman Bablani is a research fellow in the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Now, if there was ever a year that showcased the importance of health and medical research, it was 2020. Breakthroughs that happened this year, including technologies for the vaccine that promises to, the, promise, the vaccines that promise to bring us out of the pandemic wouldn't have happened without fundamental research into human genetics, nanotechnology, yeast and even hiv but many say that australian research is under threat the government's main health research funding body the national health and medical research council released its ideas grants last week to possibly the smallest success rate in the program's history tegan taylor has more over to you tegan
0: thanks and joining us on the show today is the director of the australian society of medical research dr Leela Landowski. welcome thank you very much for having me So, Leela, governments understandably want bang for buck on health and medical research. So why invest in research that doesn't have a clear application?
5: Well, the tricky thing with with, um, basic research, the kind of research that you can't necessarily see the application for today and now, is, is it? It has it has potential that we can't see. So, for example, if we think of yeast, 30 years ago when people were trying to figure out what was happening with the yeast, yeast genome, they wouldn't have known that we'd later use that now to make insulin or penicillin. So, it's this fundamental research that forms the cornerstone of discovery and innovation that we really need to be prioritising.
0: So last week you, were, you with your um, Australian Society of Medical Research, were encouraging people to use hashtag Advance Australia Care on Twitter, asking people to share their stories of research that they wanted to do but they couldn't get funding for. Can mm-hmm. you give us some examples?
5: Oh, it was just incredible. For example, we had one researcher that found that gut bacteria could help control blood pressure that could lead to new blood pressure medications. One found potential ways of potential targets to regulate our appetite, which could then lead to an obesity therapy, for example. Um, One had a drug that in past clinical trials for muscular dystrophy, it was shown to be safe, and they literally just needed funding for a clinical trial, a full clinical trial. Others found ways to work out what the, how to stop you from having the worst side effects from chemotherapy. Others found potential ways to stop certain types of cancer spreading. And we also found things like, you know, we saw examples of people whose studies had been halted. They were just sitting there in freezers. That could be potentially, um, you know, fu- the future of research, just sitting at their fingertips but but not progressing so this was in
0: response to the National Health and Medical Research Council's Ideas Grant. What proportion of grant applications are funded and how has that changed over recent years?
5: At the moment, it's looking at about less than um, less than 10% of, of grants are being funded, though we can't confirm that for sure until, until this is officially re- released through government government communications, um, but it's certainly been trending down for many, many years. And as a result of this trending down, it simply means that researchers are forced out of the industry. You know, if you're constantly fighting for a, for a 10% success rate of your, of your, of your research being funded, Researchers will, will simply leave to places like the United States or Germany or, or Denmark where funding is much better, taking their brilliant ideas, you know their potential innovative discoveries elsewhere and that we, it's a huge brain drain on Australia.
0: So you're focusing on the NHMRC, but uh, we asked the health minister about this and they pointed out that annual funding for health and medical research has nearly doubled in under the Morrison government uh, and they've also had $1 billion in COVID supplements to universities this year. Why the focus on the NHMRC?
5: Well, I guess... In this this context, they're probably referring to the Medical um, Research Future Fund, which is a really good targeted way of helping people research specific diseases. Um, The $1 billion that they've invested recently is actually to counteract the money that they've taken away through the Job Ready Graduates Bill. So it is simply compensating for money that was removed. Um, In terms of the NHMRC, this is a priority because... um, with the graphs sim- simply show very clearly that basic research, the fundamental research that forms the basis of future therapies, that forms the basis of understanding diseases, that is consistently going down. And it is this research which is the cornerstone of innovation and discovery. So if we keep pushing that research away, we're not going to have the basis for, for, for having um, future drug development if we can't do the basic research that, that underpins it here in Australia.
0: So, what are you calling for now?
5: Well, the the um, early earlier um in in 2011, the, the federal government commissioned a report called the McKeon Review, and what they found in that review was that about um, in order to capitalise on all the potential of Australian health and medical research, we need to be putting about three to four percent of um, of uh, um, the health budget into health and medical research. At the moment, it's a, a tiny 0.7%. So that's where we're aiming for, but certainly in the short term what we want to be putting into the into this is about 40 40- $488 million. And I've gotten that figure because if we take these ideas grants and we take all the ones that weren't funded but our peers said were excellent or outstanding and had a really good chance of potentially um, leading to these discoveries, if we fund that, it's going to be about $488 million. And that sounds like a lot, but if we consider the fact that every dollar we put into health and medical research gives you a $3.20 return, Four hundred eighty-eight million becomes one point five billion. So it's simply good business as well as good for our country. So
0: this is very much focused on government funding. Are there other funding sources that we should be considering? Is philanthropy part of the answer here?
5: Yeah, absolutely. And philanthropy forms a very important part of Australian health and medical research. Um, But certainly the 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 major the major um, source of funding for our research fundamentally does come from the government. Um, And it'd be great to have more investment from philanthropy. So if anyone's listening, certainly think about how you might be able to to give to your local research institute that's doing research that inspires you or is compelling to you.
0: Leela, thank you so much for joining us on The Health Report.
5: Thank you so much for your time.
1: Leela Landowski was talking to Teagan Taylor. Really interesting interview, a long way to go with medical research funding here. And if you actually ask the public Teagan they would say they would be happily pay more taxes if they knew it was going to go directly to medical research. That's right. So let's get down to this week's questions. The email to send in your questions and comments is health report at abc.net.au. What have you got this week, Tegan?
0: I've got a bulging mailbag for you, Norman, because this is our last questions segment for the year. And let's start with Chris's, who Chris is asking about dementia. In the relation to the recent segment on dementia, Chris notes that we did not discuss homocysteine. Does this mean it's no longer considered relevant? It was once considered to be potentially involved with dementia.
1: Yeah. So homocysteine is a substance that affected by amino acid metabolism. So amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. And if you've got a deficiency in B vitamins, sort of folate, B6, B12, your homocysteine level can go up. You can also get a genetic problem causing high levels of homocysteine. And in research, we've covered this many times over the years on the health report in research high homocysteine levels it's certainly hyper high homocysteine levels are associated with an increased risk of dementia and heart disease and so on and there's been a lot of interest in using folate supplements b6 and b12 to bring down homocysteine in the hope that it actually will protect the heart and the brain so homocysteine hasn't gone away it has gone off the boil it's a good question and the trials have been disappointing. There have not been great trials in this area. There is, in theory, some potential harm from B vitamin supplementation. So people are a bit nervous about that. And, of course, if you've got a high homocysteine, it generally suggests that there may be other issues to do with your diet and lifestyle and so on. So unpicking all that is actually quite difficult. But there is there is circumstantial evidence and some clinical trial evidence that homocysteine is a risk factor for liver, kidney and brain and heart problems. The general advice would be try to get it down by you know, diet and lifestyle means, but mostly diet. And you're know, taking a bit of folate probably not going to do you any harm. Although as you get older, folate supplements... Are linked to a theoretical risk of cancer, it's not funny enough, is that folate can feed existing cancers. It's not true when you're young and when you are wanting to take folate to prevent spina bifida, but later in life, there is a theoretical risk. So you know it gets very complicated. It's not disappeared though, and it's a really good question, Chris.
0: Well, speaking of risk factors for health, Steve's asking about smoking and the Segment last week on smoking and respiratory diseases. Steve says there was no mention made of smoke inhaled from other sources than cigarettes. What about people who live in townships where people cook and heat their houses over fires? How much smoke do they breathe in from these sources? Steve's lived in southern Africa and in rural settings and has come to fear that lung specialists give insufficient thought to other sources of smoke. And he suggests that instead of saying, Are you a smoker? doctors should be asking, Are you a smoker or are you? regularly exposed to smoke from other sources?
1: So there's no question about that. The World Health Organisation has uh, been very strong on indoor smoke uh, from cooking and other sources in uh, poorly resourced countries. Um, And In fact, they've tried innovations like cheap ways to use fuel more efficiently and Uh, also vent the smoke outside the house so there's been a lot of technology very simple technology to actually help that childhood pneumonia is directly associated with uh, indoor smoke from cooking and so on and obviously it's very bad for the environment when you've got inefficient heat for cooking so that is really important so it's it's a really good point Steve and certainly if you are in winter in Australia and you've got a poorly vented wood fire then that's not going to be good for you either.
0: Romani is a podiatrist and wanted to clarify the difference between a podiatrist, a podiatric surgeon and an orthopaedic surgeon because we talked about this in relation to a question recently. Uh, Romani says a podiatrist has an undergraduate bachelor or equivalent master's in podiatry or podiatric medicine and they're qualified to do cutaneous surgery only ingrown toenails and curettage usually, whereas a podiatric surgeon is a podiatrist who's then completed a fellowship with the Australasian College of Podiatric Surgeons and they have sort of bigger responsibilities, they have prescribing rights, they can do deeper surgery. And an orthopaedic surgeon has done medical school and then specialised in orthopaedic surgery and has a specialist interest in certain joints. Romany says they think that the advice that you give, Norman, about asking other clients of the surgeon was great, but wanted to just clarify because there was an implication that podiatrists do bunion surgery.
1: And the advice that I gave was to ask a surgeon how much of the surgery do they do each year? What are their results, their infection rates, their success rates? How do they define? success and so on and where do they operate as well and what are the results how safe is the hospital environment that you're going to go to
0: i think you said if someone claims a 100 percent success rate raise your eyebrow because no and, one should be claiming that
1: and run for the hills <laughs> i'll run to another practitioner
0: So Susan has osteo and rheumatoid arthritis and she manages it pretty well with codeine fort. She takes two tablets three times a day. It's good. But the prescribing rules have changed around codeine fort now. And she now has to wean herself off the codeine and replace with paracetamol, which is not working for her in reducing pain. What should people like Susan do? They want to follow the rules, but they're also suffering.
1: Obviously, I can't ask Susan directly, but she says that she's got osteo and rheumatoid arthritis. Let's assume for a moment that Susan has rheumatoid arthritis. If you've got rheumatoid arthritis, you do not want the only treatment that you're on to be a painkiller, whether it's Panadol, Ibuprofen, Codeine. You actually need a drug that's going to change the nature of the disease, what's called a disease-modifying drug or disease-modifying agent. And simple painkillers do not change the course of rheumatoid arthritis. And you are on an inexorable path fast or slow towards joint destruction and also a level of inflammation in your body that actually can shorten your life by a year or two because it can affect your heart and other things. So rheumatoid arthritis, you need to see a rheumatologist and you need to get on disease modifying treatment. doesn't necessarily have to be one of the new fancy biologics, there are other treatments there. And by the way, Prednisone and steroids are not a disease-modifying agent in rheumatoid arthritis. It's got to be something more active. I won't go into all that detail, but just remember disease-modifying, not disease-modifying to be taking codeine fork. If you've got osteoarthritis, which is less inflammatory and not to do with the immune system, in, in fact, the research suggests that the codeine-type medications, uh, codeine is not a great painkiller. And of course, it's one of the opiates and there are risks attached to it and there's some research that shows the combination of paracetamol with ibuprofen, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, together is just as effective as most of the preparations of codeine so paracetamol by itself, probably not good enough, but paracetamol with ibuprofen, assuming you don't have any contraindications to ibuprofen such as liver disease, kidney disease, maybe high blood pressure, or allergy to aspirin, or some forms of heart disease, then you, sh- then you should try that, plus exercise weight-bearing, getting the joints moving and strengthening the muscles around the joint. And that's true of rheumatoid arthritis as well.
0: We've got Helen. Helen is a triplet, which I find fascinating, multiple births. I'd love to investigate this more. And she's asking about prematurity. Helen and her triplet sisters have all noticed that they're extra sensitive to the senses. They've been unable to tolerate hot or cold days, loud situations. They're sensitive to fabrics. And she's wondering whether there's something about being a premature baby that maybe makes your senses more sensitive.
1: Well, I didn't know the answer to this question. People who look after premature babies often see when they start growing up some things that go along with it. Some of them have learning issues, some have behavioural issues, and some of them do incredibly well. But there is a little bit of evidence, um, funnily enough, that you can get some hypersensitivity, particularly to noise and sometimes touch as well. It can go along with things like autism spectrum disorder where they, the well, kids with autism spectrum disorder are known to be a bit sensitive to sound. But probably what's happened here is that the developing brain has been altered a little bit by being premature and that the way the brain has developed could well have made these sisters more sensitive. Interestingly, it sounds if they're sisters, you're more likely to be identical. You triplets, and therefore, it's not surprising if that's the case that you you've all got the same issue with your senses, which sounds like sometimes quite a good thing to have. A few years ago, we did a Aviva Ziegler did a documentary on people who were hypersensitive to sound. And it was actually a disability because they could hear a fridge motor when it was going off in a car that was starting to be sick, in a sense. And yeah. uh, they, they created a lot of problems for these people in their lives by being hypersensitive to sound. So it sounds great that, you know, like being on LSD, I'm going to be sensitive to everything around me. But it actually can drive you, you know, it, it can really be a problem. It doesn't sound like a problem to Helen, but um, it can be for some others.
0: I was wondering if it was something that people would grow out of, but given that Helen is able to write us an email, she's presumably an adult, is it something that people notice would decline over time? I
1: don't think people know enough about it. I mean, uh, it's not something that people would look at terribly much. Mm. But I did find one paper on it.
0: Well, one last question for you, Norman, from Anne, who's asking about glucosamine. Should she be taking this for
1: joint health? Short answer, no. The evidence is... For a while, they thought that there was some evidence from one form of glucosamine in particular. Uh, Actually, it was one brand from a randomised trial. But as it's been studied more, unfortunately, it'd be nice if it did, but unfortunately, glucosamine has not been shown to have significant benefits for joints. It'd be really good if it did. And there is a theoretical risk of uh, increased risk of diabetes. Well, it's not theoretical. In fact, there was one study which suggested an increased risk of type 2 diabetes on glucosamine, although the reason that that would happen was not clear.
0: Interesting. Well, Norman, that's all of the questions that I've got for you today and for this year, but we're going to bring the mailbox back next year. So if you've got a question, dear listeners, email us, healthreport at abc.net.au.
1: And we'll save it up for next year. That's right. See you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts,
4: live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.